meat processing plants are, are not typically places seen or visited by the general public, and you might not know what's going on inside, but you might be tipped off by the intense smell of the process of, of slaughtering animals and turning them into meat. There's a Tyson Foods beef plant outside of Pasco, Washington. It's the second largest employer in the county. It is a largely windowless factory that looks like almost like a warehouse, perhaps, with some additional exhaust. It's flanked on a couple sides by vast stockyards where cattle are brought in and unloaded and wait to be sent inside. That's Greg Meyer. He's the FT's natural resources correspondent. And a couple of weeks ago, he talked to Megan DeBolt, the local director of community health, about this processing plant. While she and her staff had visited this beef plant before, it had only been to visit the kitchen for the employee lunchroom to ensure that their food prep area was uh, safe and met local standards for hygiene. But the visit Megan made to the Tyson plant in April was more than cursory. There were concerns about coronavirus spreading across the plant floor. She told me that they saw the workers there on along Tyson's conveyor belts after the cattle had been slaughtered where the carcasses are cut into meat and found workers standing about three feet apart. And some were wearing face masks, some wore face masks, but they weren't wearing them properly, and some weren't wearing face masks at all, uh, according to Ms. DeVolt. She said it's the perfect breeding ground for any respiratory disease. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. 2020 was supposed to be a record year for parts of the meat industry. But then coronavirus hit the supply chain and exposed a vulnerable link in the way many of us get our food. Coronavirus hit the Tyson meat packing plant hard. At one point, 150 of the 1,200 employees tested were positive for the virus. Ten days after Megan DeBolt's visit, Tyson shut the plant down. And with that, a race to change working practices, to devise an effective testing system, and to get things up and running again began. It's the kind of race that's been happening across the U.S. We start with the latest details on a coronavirus outbreak at a Tyson Foods plant in Loisa County. SR at the JBS meat packing processing plant. This is in Greeley. At least 42 workers there have tested positive for COVID-19. Now in Iowa, in Colorado, and in Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Minnesota. JBS USA has stopped operations at a beef plant in Souderton, Montgomery County. Health officials in Ogle County say there are two dozen cases linked to Hormel Foods. Another blow to the state's health and economy. Today, 2,000 workers at a Worthington processing plant are being sent home. Meat processing plants across the U.S. have become like these mini incubators of the coronavirus outbreak. And the idling of at least 18 plants in the past several weeks has cut slaughter rates of cattle and hogs by more than 30 percent each. When things are working normally, these supply chains function almost seamlessly. There are different chains for different species of meat. The poultry industry, the chicken industry, let's say, is almost entirely vertically integrated, where the chickens are owned by the packing companies, the meat companies, such as, say, Tyson, sometimes even raised on facilities owned by the packing companies. And then they're sent to the factory and processed and packaged and put into trays of breasts and thighs, et cetera, 
um, and sent off to the grocery store. The pork industry is a little less integrated. It's still sort of highly industrial in scale, but there are independent hog farms or hog farming operations, and they'll sell them to um, the big packers. Then in beef? Cattle are raised on pasture out in Texas or Oklahoma, what have you, on grass till they get to a certain age. Those are often raised by ranching families, you know, fairly small businesses. And then those are sold to feedlot operators where they're fattened, eating corn or corn-based feed in big pens, and then they're brought to the packing houses. So they're all somewhat different. Greg, who's working in these plants? Can you describe what this work is like, what the jobs are like? These are extremely difficult jobs. They are repetitive. You're on your feet all day long. You're picking up heavy boxes or heavy pieces of meat. Part of the plant is hot where the animals are being harvested, as they say. Part of it is cold where, you know, after these animals have been chilled overnight, they are then butchered and and turned into meat. A lot of people would never want to do this work, and for good reason. The industry tends to attract a high percentage of immigrant labor. Of the nearly 500,000 meatpacking workers in the U.S., about 37% are immigrants. Refugee communities often work in these plants. They don't require English language skills. And in some of these plants, there can be more than 10 languages spoken. And then I guess furthermore, you know, a lot of these workers, they're, they're not paid a whole lot. They might be brought to work in, in, in vans that are coordinated by staffing services, or they might be carpooling. We might be living together in close quarters. So there's just the added complication of even if you have the best safety measures possible in the plant, there might be higher chance of community spread outside the plant. And, uh, and that's something that the companies, you know, can't control. And as workers started coming down with coronavirus and plants either went idle or had to slow production to deal with a shortage of staff, other parts of the supply chain started to feel the pressure. First, it was felt by the farmers. It's a just-in-time business, and um, farms are raising millions and millions of of hogs, for example. Well, if they want to sell them, they can't let them grow too old because the meat becomes less palatable. And those millions of hogs they're, they're shipping each week suddenly have no place to go. And so in some cases, farms have been forced to kill and compost or landfill their hogs because packing plants aren't taking them. So there's a huge problem on, on, on farms as well. And then there's potentially even an impact on the grain supply because uh, pigs um, and chickens, et cetera, are huge consumers of corn and soybeans. So there's impacts the whole sort of agricultural system. On the other end of the supply chain, grocery stores and consumers started to feel some of that pressure too. Big U.S. chains like Kroger and Costco have actually limited the amount of meat their customers can buy, all to avoid a full-out panic. Greg, with these plants shut down or at least slowing production, how likely is it that we're going to actually see fewer you know, packages of meat, cuts of meat at the grocery store? Since uh, a peak in mid-March, the weekly slaughter numbers for beef and pork both fell by more than 30 percent, um, according to government data. And so, yeah, I mean, that that will trickle into the meat supply chain. There is some meat that's uh, in cold storage warehouses that can be used, but it's not a huge amount of supply. So um, there are some valid concerns about shortages, potentially of certain cuts or in certain channels. I mean, I don't think the country is um, going to need to go vegetarian, but um, 
plentiful supply, the expectation that anything you want will always be available anytime you want it might be challenged, at least in the short term. I had a couple questions about how grocery stores are handling the pinch in the supply chain. Hello. So I called up Stu Leonard Jr. of The Stu Leonard's. It's a grocery chain on the East Coast. I I wish I could say I was in a more professional um, recording studio, but I am in my closet right now because we're recording from home. I talked to him on FaceTime so he could give me a a proper tour of his store. Okay, this is a big farmer's market area. We've got a big red and white... Stu Leonard's has been called the Disneyland of dairy stores, but it's had to make some changes in the time of coronavirus. Before, staff would wear giant animal costumes and greet shoppers. That's gone now. Instead, there's someone wiping down cart handles with disinfectant at the entrance. The store is also trying to reduce the amount of people inside at any given time. There's a sign out front that asks for only one person per household to do the shopping. But their wide aisles certainly do help make social distancing easier. Yeah, particularly here in Manhattan, it's pretty difficult to social distance at the bodega. Well, I don't know how you do it. In- They've also changed some of the ways they keep their shelves stocked. Stu tells me that they carry 20-pound bags of rice, and that's something he never thought customers would be interested in before. The butcher's back here, right? How you doing? Guys, you are on TV And then he takes me to the meat aisle. He talks to the butchers working on the other side of the counter. So, come on, what, what have you noticed about what people are buying with meat right now? What have you noticed? Large quantities? They want the meat. Have you seen, have you seen any shelves empty here at Stu's? Okay. Back in his office, Stu tells me more about how his stores have been preparing for the effects of the pandemic. In normal times, he says he's able to match expected sales from year to year. But that's changed. You usually use last year's data to forecast off of. And what we're doing, instead of using last year, we're using last week. So that's a, the change that's happened. And we've talked to our management team here at Stu Leonard's is that it's a whole new game now. You know, this is where you got to make decisions quickly. Things are changing quickly. Customers' patterns are changing right now. We're seeing an increase in beef prices from the packing plants where we're buying beef. You know, obviously right now, if they're at 70% capacity, the supply has shrunk in the country. Would you be able to um, provide any sort of um, comparison, what it was like a per unit cost for you to purchase meat before coronavirus and what that looks like today? Well, I would say talking to my meat buyers, they're saying they're seeing like, like anywhere from right now, a five to 10 to 15% increase on certain cuts of beef. Even though as a regional grocery chain, most of Stu's meat comes from smaller facilities, he still felt the squeeze from the concerns over supply. Which brings us back to a Sunday in April, when John Tyson, the chairman of Tyson Foods, took out a full-page ad in three U.S. newspapers. He took out an ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Arkansas Democrat Gazette to try to raise the alarm that because of COVID-19 outbreaks, he warned would result in shortages of meat for the consumer. And since health standards of these plants are actually regulated by local authorities, this ad might have been Tyson Foods asking for help from the federal government. I think one reason he did this was to try to amplify an effort to get government to step in, and the federal government in particular, to step in, create a unified plan 
to address this situation and to try to keep as many plants open as possible. Yeah, we're working we with Tyson. We are. We're going to sign an executive order today, I believe, and uh, that'll solve any liability problems where they had certain liability problems. And uh, we'll be in very good shape. How did that message register in Washington? Well, it's it's hard to say if his letter single-handedly um, had an effect, but uh, certainly two days later, uh, President Trump signed uh, an executive order to allow meat and poultry plants to stay open or reopen as long as they met these worker safety guidelines that had been put together by the federal government. And they haven't yet directly overridden the state or local health departments on this. And then I think it'll be interesting to see as this goes forward. But I, I think it did create pressure for those other governmental entities to get these plants open. Now, Greg says there are two main reasons why the Trump administration would want to take steps to support meat production. One is that the sight of empty meat counters at the supermarket would likely create a fair bit of concern among American shoppers. That makes a lot of sense. And certainly politically, too, it doesn't feel great for voters to show up and not be able to buy the food they want. And the second related reason is just how important agriculture is to the overall U.S. economy. I mean, the latest statistics estimated that animal agriculture was going to bring in about $186 billion in revenue for farmers in 2020, which is about half of the total total farm revenue. And so if farmers can't sell their animals and have to euthanize some animals, et cetera, their farm you know, income will drop. And moreover, you know, just look at the political angle as well. States where agriculture is a big part of the economy voted for Trump um, in 2016, and I'm, I'm sure he's banking on their support again this year. But there's also a third reason, a possible side narrative to consider, and that's the role pork was supposed to play in U.S.-China trade relations this year. So in January, after a couple of years of tariffs and counter-tariffs between Washington and Beijing, they reached a, a truce. And as part of that truce, China committed to purchase set amounts of uh, U.S. exports. Um, among those were agricultural exports. Um, it was going to be $80 billion of exports over two years. If China were to follow through as promised, and if U.S. meat production continued to be strained, it could set up kind of a, a dynamic where Chinese consumers are effectively competing with American consumers for American meat. Meanwhile, back in Washington state, the Tyson Foods plant has reopened, as have other meat plants across the country. And the plant floors look a little different now. Plexiglass dividers separate workers along the production lines. Staff are required to wear masks. Lunchrooms are spaced out. In some cases, workers are even eating their meals outside. And before a shift starts, workers have their temperature scanned. Those with a fever are meant to be sent home. Some companies have offered disability pay to encourage those who might be sick to stay home. These are just a few of the measures that have been taken up in the past couple of weeks, and they've received a mixed review from the workers and the unions that represent them. It hasn't been uniformly backed. In fact, it's raised concerns among labor unions and other worker groups who are concerned that they're basically being called back into plants that may or may not be safe and putting their lives at risk to process meat and um, help ensure a meat supply to the country and to help out the agricultural sector. And the unions are, are, are in particular really mobilizing to, I mean, they, they want to operate too, but they're mobilizing to make sure that their workers are not basically forced to put their lives at risk. 
Craig, what would you say this outbreak has revealed about the way the U.S. food system operates? The outbreak reveals in the meat industry how dependent it is on manual labor. These are workers who obviously cannot work from home. You can't slaughter a cow from home and you can't cut it up and you can't box it from home. So these are people who, you know, if Americans want to eat meat, these are people who are truly doing essential work. And um, this seems sort of obvious, and and this is probably trite for me to say this as well, but I mean, it's easy to take for granted people that are underpinning this highly complex system that that feeds you. Um, This situation highlights who those people might be and, and what some of the risks are being taken to keep people fed in this country. Do you think there's any chance that this moment might change public perception about how their food is packed, about who's doing the packing? That's a really good question because there are all kinds of quality, all kinds of certifications that are uh, attached to various types of foods. And many of those, you know, are about how the food is produced, how the animal is raised. So, you know, is it cage-free chickens? Is it GMO or, or non-GMO soybeans or corn? You know, is it organic or not, et cetera? And there, I think there, there are some certifications that have to do with the people who are raising it. And, you know, certainly if you think about like certain coffee certifications and, mm-hmm. and but I, I can't think of many that, that say this animal was killed by a meatpacking worker who was paid X amount per hour and enjoys right. Y benefits. And I wonder if, I wonder if, if, if that would happen. I, somehow I doubt it, but um, I wonder. This story will continue to play out over the next several weeks and almost certainly in the next few months. You can keep up with how it unfolds at ft.com. To get started, we've linked to a few articles in the show notes for this episode. And you can also stay up to date by signing up to the coronavirus business update. It's the FT's email newsletter that covers all the ways the pandemic is affecting global markets, business and workplaces. You can get 30 days of free access to the newsletter and these stories by visiting FT.com slash behind the money COVID. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could rate and leave a review of the show in Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app of choice. It does help other people find out about us. This episode was produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. 